The, my guest this week on the podcast is Selena Larson, an intelligence analyst at Dragos. Selena is a member of the threat intelligence team over there working on, you know, keeping customers updated on technical uh, issues, malware issues related to ICS, skater issues. Selena, welcome to the show. How are you? Thank you so much. I'm doing good. How's it going? It's good. I'm, I've been following your career for a while, um, having been a journalist myself before jumping into the on the, onto the vendor side to do figure out content and strategy for on the vendor side. So I've been really, really interested in seeing some other journalists make this move. How has it been for you? And, you know, has there been any anything that's surprising from this move uh, that you did? So I get asked that, you know, occasionally, especially from, you know, journalism friends. Um, and I have really liked the move. Um, it's it's been uh, different in a lot of ways and very similar in a lot of ways. So um, a lot of the skills, you know, that you use as a journalist apply really well to um, to threat intelligence um, and analysis. Um, not only that, but it's really fun to sort of really dig in and get your hands dirty and become an expert on something. Um, I think oftentimes as journalists, especially if your beat is sort of cybersecurity, right? Like it's a huge beat. Um, so you don't really get to drill down into anything specific. Um, so it's been really cool to kind of become sort of a subject matter expert um, in uh, when it comes to like industrial control systems, cybersecurity, um, and the adversaries that are that are targeting that space. And when you when you're doing in the course of your work, you you sometimes feel like you're treating this as journalism, right? I mean, you're basically trying to parse really technical data and trying to parse threats. Uh, simplify it for an audience that needs to react to it and and have some sort of actionable uh, uh, response to it. So it's a it's a lot like it's a lot analysis is a lot like journalism, or it's it's I would put it the other way. Journalism is a lot like this kind of intelligence analysis. Yeah, yeah, and what's what's kind of cool. So so it's kind of interesting. I feel like you know journals and like a lot of different careers um people aren't super familiar with how it works and inner workings and like um you know being able to write something that is is um available to a broad audience um when i was in j school uh, i went to, to journalism school and we were essentially taught like right at you know a fifth to eighth grade reading level um, you don't want to make things too complicated. You want everybody to be able to read it. You want to have information be accessible to the masses, um, right? Like, like the freedom of the press and access to information is so important to, you know, functioning uh, and a healthy society. And so to kind of be a good steward of information from a journalism perspective, you want to make it so that it's accessible and, and you know, can be digested by everybody. Um, and from an analysis analysis perspective, it's it's very similar, right? Like it's 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 a lot more focused. It's hyper focused on um, whether it's a specific threat or malware or or you know whatever the activity might be. Um, but you really want to break it down into you know the the, the sort of headline key takeaways, like you know, yeah, like, that's like the what, basics. What is most important? Um, right, just making things simplifying it and bringing it back down to the basics. And it's so difficult for us in technology industry because our content is so muddled with uh, the opposite of the basics, <laughs> right? And the need for people to just simplify things so that customers understand the threat, understand what their exposure to risk is, and just at a very, very simple level say, okay, th these are the actionable things I can do to manage this risk in a simple way. So all they need, they don't need, in many cases, in many respects, they don't need the full technical breakdown. That's for the guys who want to nerd out on it, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really based on an audience, right? Like threat intelligence can be very useful across an entire organization, um, right? Like all the way from the the defenders, like, you know, the SOC 1 analysts who are, are, are triage triaging alerts and trying to figure out, you know, what the threats are to their environment all the way up to the the, the C-suite, right? Like the CEO or the CTO making businesses uh, or CFO making business decisions. Um, the HR even, um, right? Like, like, okay, maybe I shouldn't be posting this type of description in a job description because, you know, we see adversaries that are, are, are going after LinkedIn um, or, or could be, you know, using these job descriptions to inform their, you know, uh, initial access operations or, or OSIC collection kind of thing. So I think it could be, super useful and it's it's just a matter of communicating it to the correct audience right like it could be very technical to your point like you know 
people like the nitty gritty. Um, but if you're communicating, you know, up the organization, up to a, the C-suite level, like you got to strip that down. <laughs> well, absolutely. Did you struggle at all personally with leaving the purity and sanctity of journalism and going over to the vendor side? I mean, it's something I struggled with. And, you know, I talked to a lot of uh, my peers and journalists that sometimes wonder is like, hey, Ryan, how do you deal? How did you deal with, quote unquote, the stench of going over to the vendor side? Is that something that crossed your mind when you made this move? Oh, absolutely. Um, and I, I love that how you describe journalism um, is his sort of, you know, pristine and, uh, you know, no, I, sound, I, I actually wonderful. think it's nonsense. But I mean, I, I, <laughs> well, because it is in a lot of ways, right? Like, like you as a journalist, you have principles and ethics and you have guiding, um, guiding lights essentially, right? Like you have ethical rules to follow. You have, I don't, it's kind of hard to say you're, you're not relying on vendors to tell the truth, right? Like you're not relying on, on these corporations to, to give you the full information. And, um, and so in your head as a journalist, right, you're often like the dark side, oh, the vendors are the dark side or whatever. Um, and so for me, it was, um, it was kind of difficult, but I think the most challenging thing for me is as a journalist, everything that you're producing, everyone can read and you're sharing information to the world, right? Like you want people to get your eyes on that stuff. And by the nature of being a threat intelligence vendor, um, and Dracos is, is, you know, more than just threat intel, right? Like we have like an actual security product. And so our intel has to feed that and support the business. And, you know, like it's a business, right? Um, and so not everyone can read the stuff that I'm doing and it's like good, insightful, important information. Um, but you know, it's, it's because it's a business and you want to make money, it's, you know, restricted to, to customers. So, um, it's, it, it was kind of funny to go th- from, you know, everyone reads like the content that I'm putting out there to like a, a smaller audience is, is getting this information. Um, so that was kind of a, kind of an interesting thing as well. Um, but I do have to say that I, I, I believed in the mission. Part of the reason why I loved journalism was because I did believe in journalism and the importance of freedom of the press and, you know, how important, you know, media is to, you know, a, a, a functioning society. But I kind of feel the same way about the, the work that I'm doing now. Um, Dragos's tagline is like safeguarding civilization or whatever. And like, it's, it's, to me, it's important. And I do feel that the work that I'm doing is benefiting people and is helping to, you know, safeguard critical infrastructure. Um, so I do still get that sort of smug satisfaction of feeling like I'm doing good in the world. No, <laughs> like, no, I've had your, that I got from journalism. I've had your CEO on the podcast and Rob, you know, he's, he, this, this saving civilization thing sounds like, you know, hooey fooey, uh, yeah. uh, delusions <laughs> of grandeur, but I mean, at the, at the very basic functional level, you know, he makes the argument that that's what I'm doing. And you you start to feel like a certain uh, value for the work you're doing. And you start to feel a certain f- fulfillment for the contributions you're making to like wider society. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. you that the purity and the, sanct- the sanctity of journalism returns, right? I mean, that was it for me. Right. Yeah, that's the thing. Like, I, I, and I think it's security to like, it's funny because you have you know, corporations like Facebook, right? And I see a lot of conversation going on about Facebook and people working at Facebook and, and being like, oh, okay, like, you know, this is what you're you're doing to support this. And I see a lot of the sort of negative impacts of social media of Facebook on the world that are incongruent with the, you know, the statements that they have and, you know, the their, their supposed ethos, right? But from like a security perspective, from a, from a, a security vendor perspective, you know, like the work that you're doing, it might be on a smaller scale, right? But you're fundamentally, hopefully, I mean, ideally, right? The work that you're doing is going to be protecting people and it's going to be a lot more in, be more, you know, in parallel with, you know, the ethics and beliefs and the things that are exposed by, you know, whoever the the organization uh, leaders are. And in an infosec role, I feel like no matter, you know, where, where you are in an organization or, or, you know, what, you know, supporting entities, right? Like, like a security company who is, you know, working with schools or working with hospitals or, you know, working with banks, right? Like, like these things, like making people feel secure and building things to, you know, keep them safe and and their information secure, I think is like very important and very fundamental aspect of, of, you know, society as well. So, 
it is like it's capitalism, right? Like <laughs> it's, it's a business. We're in it to make money. But at the same time, you know, I, I, I think that you can feel good and, and proud about, you know, the, the contributions that your work is having for, you know, whoever your customers are or the people that you work with. Um, yeah, so, yeah, so, it's, so, it's, it's, it's definitely something I think about a lot, actually. <laughs> yeah, there's two points you raised there. If you don't mind, we can linger on them a little bit. One is it's a business and we all have to live and we all have to feed our families. And a lot of this sanctity of journalism thing really affects that because journalism does not pay the bills. You can be a senior editor at a major publication and the salary scales are not commensurate with what they really should be for the value you're offering there. And, and moving over to, to the vendor sites changes the dynamics tremendously. And if you can manage a way to bring your journalism aboard, and I'm seeing a lot of people do it. We just had an announcement yesterday of someone else doing it. Um, uh, someone went to Recorded Future to create a publication to Recorded Future. So this is a trend that's holding. So the, the economics of it is not something we can overlook, right? A hundred percent. And that that's a great point. So... I, I mean, if we if we're honest and talk openly about journalism salaries, I believe a lot of people would be gasping for air at what money people make writing for uh, tech publications, especially. Yes, yes, um, it is. It is. I you know I never made six figures. In fact, I, I'll just be open and honest about sharing my salary because I think that you can. Um, I started in the industry working at a tech publication um, for uh, about fifty grand, fifty k a year. When was this? 2016, 15? 13. 13, okay. Yeah, so 2013, about 50K. And then um, through um, t- about 2016, um, around those times, it got you know bumped up to 60K. And then um, I, I basically sort of ended my career um, a little over 80K in journalism. Working so, at CNN. Yes, yes. Um, and so... And before that, when I was working in a nonprofit, I made even like so much less. So, and, <laughs> um, and, and, and to so the journalist and to the young journalists listening to this, and some of you guys toiling in newsrooms, and I'm not discounting the work you're doing. We're not here to say you're being underpaid and you need to get out. But what we're saying is that you are being underpaid uh, significantly, and there are lots of other opportunities available and open for you, right? Totally. Yeah. So that's. So I do want to say, though, that I even though, you know, journalism doesn't necessarily pay the best, um, there are I, I, I think that it's because, you know, sort of journalism as an industry is like broken. And I have a lot of like actual theories about this. And like we I could like talk about a whole podcast like this, but I know your your podcast is about security. No, no, no. So we can like, we can nerd out on journalism. I mean, this is my thing that I overthink as well. So if you want to go there, we can. <laughs> We can shoot the breeze on it right. because what, what a, a lot of my listeners are having the same issues and my listeners are CISOs, people building security programs, a lot of the, uh, founders and CEOs that are trying to figure out their content strategy and trying to figure out their messaging. So a lot of the journalism discussions that happen on this podcast are so relevant to security organizations and, and vendors building out security programs. So we can get into this if you want. Sure. Yeah. So I think, you know, what... What's interesting is, is so your skills can be, you know, applicable across the board. Um, I think actually you mentioned earlier, someone had just moved um, to a um, from from journalism into intelligence. Um, Greg Otto over at CyberScoop, he was editor in chief of CyberScoop. He just went to Intel 471. Yeah, that's the second one I was talking about. And then the guy left the Wall Street Journal to go take uh, create recorded futures new publication. Right. So just in the last in the last three weeks, we had two more. Yeah, so it's it's been you know it's been this sort of um, I don't want to say an exodus because it certainly isn't. There's amazing cybersecurity journalists out there doing terrific work, um, but the draw is certainly there. And um, we talked about the financial piece as well. Also, the desire to just like know information and like you know kind of get a peek under the hood. The stuff, like I said, you know earlier, not everything is is public information. Yes, yeah, right? so you're writing like, a lot of private reports with a lot of fun, privileged information that no one else has exactly, access to, right? Yeah, that you can get your eyes on. Um, and that's huge. And I think that, I think in a lot of ways, it's not just the value um, that people are sort of recognizing the um, value and, and, and capabilities of journalists, but the value and importance of good communication and good writing. And when I moved into the vendor side, one of the things that I was really surprised about was um, that like writing and communication wasn't something that was like, you know, everyone could do it well. <laughs> uh, it's it's startling how bad it is. 
Yes. Yes. And I, and I, I want to say there's nothing wrong with that. Right. Like, like writing is a skill in like as much as you know, coding is a skill, right? Like you have, right. Like engineering, and, like a superpower, and, not just a skill, an actual superpower communicating and communicating clearly to your desired audience is not something totally. that should be dismissed and taken lightly or, yeah. or, or, or devalued in an organization anyway. Right. No. And I come. And, and so that to me is like a positive, right? Like it does seem that, you know, these more you know, security organizations are realizing that they have to be able to better communicate things and communicate effectively. And this kind of goes back to like all of these other problems, right? Like, like historically people have been bad at understanding cybersecurity, like, like from just a general overall perspective of humanity, like people have been bad at understanding, um, computer security, phone security, privacy, um, all of these issues. That well, we have been, kind of- just historically, we've been ageist about it, right? Like as soon as you reach a certain age or your hair hits a certain color, you're, yeah. you're kind of expected to not be computer literate. And it, and it extends even to the modern generation, the TikTok generation and these guys using these newer tools, right? It's not, it's really interesting. It's a really interesting point you bring up about like generational uh, response to these things. Yes. Yeah. So, so there's like a lot of, of, you know, sort of misunderstandings, miscommunications and from this, this question, right? Like, Oh, how can we make this like better? How can we make people more secure? I think it really comes down to being able to effectively communicate these things. Um, I mean, when you're kind of talking about journalism, like there, there was good um, niche security journalism for a really long time. Um, but the mainstream really had an issue kind of ad- adopting to and accurately reporting security issues. I mean, it's still a problem that you see on a regular basis, um, you know, especially when you're looking at like local news, for instance, um, local news reporters who have to cover things like ransomware um, or data breaches. Um, they're, you know, not necessarily understanding these fundamental security concepts. Um, and then they're, you know, incorrectly communicating them to sort of a broader audience. And so I think, you know, from this is this is an issue at its root that can be addressed with better communication and better, you know, explanation of these issues. And so I think, you know, it's, it's awesome that you see a lot of really talented writers going into these more, you know, technical spaces to hopefully, you know, change the narrative and, and, and better communicate. And I'm not saying that this hasn't been done before, certainly. Um, but it is one of those things that I think that people are, are becoming more aware of it. And, and, you know, the sort of, I hate this term, but like soft skills that, you know, people tended to sort of look down their noses at in more sort of technical fields, um, are becoming valued. And I gotta the, tell the, you, the, it's changing, you know, Selena, it's changing. Okay. I, I do a lot of like a private navigating of some networks with CISOs and some major security leaders here. And when they list their top two, top three, top four priorities in order, it's always communicating security upwards or downwards or across my organization or internally mm-hmm. or outwards is a top priority for them because they're starting to recognize that this narrative and this communicating security, even up to your board, because the boards are asking harder questions now. The CEO, his, his job is on the line when there's a major breach. He's asking harder questions now. So CEOs are struggling now to figure out, am I communicating to my board with color-coded dashboards? Like, what's the simplest way to get these things across? And they're reaching mm-hmm. out to folks like me to say, hey, what's the precise way to communicate security internally here? So it's starting to change, and it's starting to change. I mean, we just talked about the trend about vendors um, Vendors bringing more and more journalists aboard. And we're starting to see the trend of a lot of founders and security CISOs like Rob and some of these guys taking this as seriously as they should. So I, I think it's a positive trend. Yeah. And, and to your point, um, effectively communicating all the way at the CISO level, I, I bring up this um, the story of, of Locker Goga and Norse Kydro as kind of an example in amazing communication. Um, because so often you see companies sort of try and sweep cyber events under the rug. Um, and, you know, there, the, all of these canned statements that we experienced, a cyber incident, and we're investigating, right? Like you have these like very sort of canned statements. There's not a lot of visibility there. There's not a lot of, um, of, of you know, insight into what happened. And what after the Lacragoga attack back in 2019 um, on North Hydro, the aluminum manufacturer, they came out like guns blazing, like here is what happened. Here's what we're doing about it. Here is, you know, video footage 
of our plant operations, right? Like here is our, you know, here are, here are folks that are running things on paper because our entire computer network um, from the business and enterprise side of things is down. Um, so that I think is a terrific example of, of awesome communication and very effective communication um, that, that is really in stark contrast to what we've seen before. And the ultimate result was, you know, positive. I think in a lot of ways, like it, 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 the fear of, oh, well, if I expose what's going on, you know, it would be, you know, bad financially or, you know, sort of take this, this, um, uh, hit to our organizations, you know, the, 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 what people know us for whatever, like, but it's been really positive. I think, um, the, the outcome was like, wow, this is great. This is how all companies should respond. Like, this is how you communicate a cyber attack. Yeah, this um, kind so of I like thought that was pretty interesting. Real openness and transparency at a at a genuine level, and not like uh, uh, driven by some sort of marketing PR narrative. Mm-hmm. Totally, totally. Do you miss journalism, and what do you miss about it the most? Traditional journalism. Yes, I miss journalism. I miss. Mm, I miss talking to people, honestly. Um, I think, you know, one of the coolest parts of my job and being a journalist was just talking to um, different people every single day, Um, having really terrific interviews and, you know, getting inside the minds of some really interesting, creative, fun, wonderful people. Um, And this is the opposite. This is the the downside and the con of specialization, right? Because you said earlier mm -hmm. that the the ability to specialize on ICS and specialize on this content and really own it as a beat that you own and you own and you own, right? But Mm -hmm. the downside of that, right, is that you miss, you potentially miss out on all these open conversations as a journalist you've been having with folks in multiple different places that are doing amazing, unique things as well. Totally. Yes. Uh Uh-huh. And that is, that is one thing that I, that I definitely miss. Um, I think, and and honestly, to to like, I I do miss people reading the stuff that I write. I think to be a journalist, you have to have an ego um, because you have to. Yeah, it's know, a competitive have, sport. Yeah, yeah, it's a very competitive world, and you have to believe that the stuff that you're writing is something that's that like that a lot of people should read. Um, and I think that. I, I certainly have one. Um, and I think that, you know, I, I enjoyed people reading my stuff and hearing feedback and, and everything. And, and I think that um, I kind of miss that. I, I, I do miss the, um, the, the sort of two-way communications between, you know, like the, the writer and the reader. And that's I difficult. Do, do that's difficult. Video journalism. So that's why I'm kind of, you know, talking about the writing <laughs> piece. Right, right. Um, but yeah, I, I think that, you know, that, that engagement, that back and forth and, and knowing that, you know, the stuff that you're doing is impacting people in some way because you hear from them or you see it. Um, that I do, I do miss that. That's interesting. Um, it's a good point because it's something that's hard to recreate in a private, private report setting. I did the same thing over at Kaspersky. We were doing a lot of the most amazing research reports no one has ever read, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> and, and that feedback loop and getting some sort of background and stuff from customers is not something that the report writers might have. Some of the malware analysts in the trenches might have that relationship. So that's an interesting point I didn't think of. Yeah, it's, it's, it's funny, you know, like not seeing your byline. Um, it's, it's a different, it's definitely different and, and tough to get used to. Oh, and I would say the other thing that I don't know if I miss necessarily, <laughs> but is very stark difference. Um, Journalism is very deadline driven. Um, and there was always, I don't know if you got this, um, but there's always this kind of like rush, this sort of adrenaline rush when you're working on a story and you're wanting to get it out and you, you know, like, like, especially if it's like a scoop or like you're pushing on a, on something that has and to be done. And it's never really properly done ever. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And there's just like this, like sort of like, oh, this adrenaline is, I got to get it out. Um, and on the intel, the flip side of that is that sometimes things take a lot longer because you're just constantly gathering information, getting information. And, and there's, that, you have to have a point where it's like, okay, this is enough information and I want to conduct my analysis. Oh yeah. So, we wrote, we wrote a whole report, another report, a blog post, a blog post on how APT research is like paleontology. And you're basically just like snagging bones and connecting it slowly over the course of years mm-hmm. and years. And I always ask the guys in the malware analysts, like, how do you know when you're done? And they're mm-hmm. like, you're never done, right? It's never, ever done because you're, you'll put out a report and you're still setting traps here and you're still working on your honeypots over there to keep tracking things. Uh, exactly. Well, and, that, and that's why I think the sort of mindset of journalists can be really valuable on a threat intelligence team because 
you know, I'll come in and be like, no, we're done. We got to get this out. Like <laughs> we're on a deadline. Let's move, go, go, go. If we have more information, we'll push, push another report out. Um, cause for me, I'm just like, we got to publish. We got like, like my brain is just like deadline, 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 like bam, bam, bam. We have to like work and, and just, you know, give the people what they want. Uh, and now, <laughs> and now trying, try, try doing that in a Twitter world now where you're expected to break your scoop on Twitter first and oh, then yeah. scramble to get your blog post up and then scramble to write, like write out your detailed story. It's, it's just a different world now. I just, the, the democratization of journalism has yeah, been. It's like, it's, it's a the democratization of journalism, but also B, I think that it sort of creates these silos and these like little sort of like filter bubbles. And I think that, you know, when I guess it's just kind of my my fundamental belief and like love of journalism is kind of informing this, but but I, I think this sort of mistrust in journalism, the sort of rush to get scoops, the sort of you know pressure on journalists to you know go fast and get things and, and get things out um, is also a byproduct of um, journalism becoming you know in New York, Washington, LA, and San Francisco, right? Like there's these small geographic areas. And a large part of, and I'm, I'm talking, I'm talking national here, right? Like I'm, I'm talking from a very U.S. focused mindset. Um, I don't, so, I, so, so that's kind of my caveat here. Um, but before, historically, you know, when we had newspapers, you had local journalism, you had, you know, the journalists who would go into a coffee shop and people would know them. They would be at the city council meetings. They would be reporting on these these items that impacted, you know, these sort of smaller communities, and that. You're, you're, that is that is gone, right? As you know, journalism has largely concentrated in the coasts. These large conglomerates are buying them up, and then you have you know social networks that are like pillaging the advertising revenue and everything. And so you don't have people that are that are there to sort of cover you know the city council, and you're not going to get that on Twitter. But right? it's being like, re- isn't it being replaced with the Twitter coverage and the Facebook Live coverage and fo- I mean it's being replaced in in the problem is it's being replaced in ephemeral ways that it's disappearing very quickly, right? So like traditional traditional media coverage that stands as a record of time that is disappearing, and that's the saddest part of it. Uh, yes, but I would also say though I would push back a little on that that it's not really being replaced by by um, Twitter. I mean, you might have city council folks that are live streaming the Facebook Live, but you're not having those analysts, which is effectively what journalists are. You're not having analysts in the audience, you know, conducting analysis on the information that's being shared by you know a city government or a, a local business or you know like you're, you're you don't have that sort of. Um, um, you know, the threat intel or the, the intelligence, right? Oh, Coming out of your community from a very local level because you have to rely on these these other platforms that are these sort of, like you're saying, very ephemeral, um, not, you know, not very nuanced. It's let me ask like, you this. Let me ask, let me push back just a little bit on that. Do you think people are more informed today or less informed today? I think it depends. I think it depends on your life circumstances, quite frankly. It depends on um, which Facebook bubble you're into, right? Yes, it depends on, yeah, it depends on the bubble. It depends on, you know, personally, I think I am much more informed about, you know, the world than my parents would have been at the same point in their life. Um, I feel that people in communities are a lot more informed today than they were five years ago. Forget your parents, five years ago. I think the emergence, and it's not only Twitter and Facebook, it's the emergence of like uh, siloed, uh, what do you call them, balkanized things like next door and some of those uh, things are keeping a lot of like closed groups, uh, a lot of information sharing and quote unquote journalism is starting to happen there. It's an right, interesting dynamic I, to watch, just to watch and observe. I, but that's, that's an interesting point. So, so there's more information. So if we're talking in, informed or well-informed. Right. I mean, <laughs> um, we can argue, we can because, argue that like there's no, there's no national news anymore. It's all been just entertainment where you just kind of create two opposing views so they can argue on CNN and call that the news show. There is no real journalism anymore. Uh, there are small pockets here and there, even at the national level. But what you're talking about is localized, hyper-localized local content. I live in Awatuki in Phoenix on, on, on my, um, on my, on my driveway once a week, I get the, the, the local newspaper. It's very, very local, hyper-local. And mm-hmm. I feel very, very informed in my local community. I mean, that stuff is going away nationally, though. I mean, we're a rare breed that still gets it. 
Yeah. I think that's, that, that makes me very happy. <laughs> I, uh, I know that, um, I have actually read the Awatuki paper. Um, they, yeah, Awatuki Foothills a, News. A, it's like a real thick newspaper that comes out every week. It's, it's ad supported. It's very localized. The content tr- covers our local schools or local political issues. It's, it's pretty cool. Yeah. And I think like, I, I, but to your point, like that's not something that is most people have right yeah, like, that's disappeared. that is accessible and i think that you know the i i would push back a little bit i do think that there are you know good national news items i do think that a lot of it is fundamentally broken do not get me wrong totally and the problem um, with the good national I, news items is this is not available for the masses it's not easily available for the masses the ones that are easily available and just by, by you know being drummed into their ears and heads all day at airports and wherever you are is the nonsense <laughs> right Yes, yes. And I know you don't um, want to, I don't want to, I don't want to bitch about CNN mostly. I just, I just <laughs> remembered your previous association. <laughs> I mean, it's, a, but it's you know a, what I'm fair, talking right? about, like, right? Like criti- criticism of cable news is a hundred percent fair, but I think kind of Stop going back calling to it cable this, news, like, it's not cable news. Like that's the other problem. It's like, we treat it as news. <sighs> anyway. Cable, cable television. <laughs> cable entertainment, cable political entertainment. Right. But I think like from a, from a, um, like a hyper-local standpoint, I think it's awesome, right. That you have these like small pockets of information, but I think that, you know, like you, you brought them next door, next door can have, you know, a lot of good information, but it can oh, also, it's a cesspool. like, it's what? It's a cesspool. I mean, you, yes, you go into is. some of these balkanized hyper, hyper-local groups that are, you know, dedicated to a single issue. And oh my God, mm-hmm. you, you want to get yeah. out of there as fast as possible. Right. And it, and it like perpetuates, it can very often like perpetuate racism. It perpetuates, you know, poor, you know, it, it's not neighborly, I would say. <laughs> I agree. Um, but, um, but that's but how yeah, people I, are I, being informed, right? Like that's, that's the, that's the quality of information and, and the level of people keeping informed in their local communities today. Yeah. Well, and that, that kind of goes back. I mean, what this whole conversation is about, right? Like, like analysis and, and intelligence and information sharing, right? Like having, and having a process by which information can be distributed to, um, the, as many, you know, the, the, the audience that needs it. I mean, in a lot of ways, right? Like, like news, like we were talking about vendors, like vendors is a business, news is a business, right? Like, like fundamentally that's what it is and, and why it's largely broken because, you know, you have, it's, 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 it's not a, the heyday of newspapers and, and oftentimes trying to figure out, you know, how to fund this Intel that you're distributing. Um, you have to compromise in ways that, journalists don't necessarily agree with um and that's why you're seeing a lot of like unionization efforts um on uh from a lot of of um local outlets for instance arizona republic um because they're kind of pushing back on their corporate ownership be like look we realize this is a business but we have you know like we want to make sure that we're getting the information to the people that we're paid fairly that we're you know representing arizona so um so it's kind of interesting right like like we talked about the dark side vendor, you know, capitalism business issue of threat intelligence. Um, but in a lot of ways, it's kind of the similar, like this, that's happening in journalism too. It's, it's also a business and, and, you know, navigating that I think is, is a huge challenge. Um, and hopefully, you know, I, I still have faith. I, like I said, I'm like such a firm believer in journalism. <laughs> yeah. I feel like, I feel like um, you and I have a separate podcast that we can do once a week and just like nerd out on that stuff. <laughs> I, right? s- I know it's like sorry this is security i'm trying to i'm trying to bring it back to security and the, and the, the stuff that we were talking about earlier but yeah i know both of us can no this conversation I, i'll tell you too this conversation resonates with my audience i've had andy greenberg on recently i've had zach whitaker on and we've you know i've had a bunch of journalists oh, on and, and like these are these are some of the conversations that are resonating with the audience but you're also like an intelligence analyst at dragos and i, I can't bring you on the podcast without asking you at a high level to give me a sense <laughs> of this ics SCADA security space uh, how yeah. bad is it? Give, walk all the way up at the macro level and give me a sense of just how bad is it and how and, and, and obviously it'll be localized, right? Like it, it could be bad here and bad somewhere else. And mm-hmm. the geo the geopolitical components of it makes it really, really tricky. But at a very high mm-hmm. level, how, how bad, how exposed are we? <laughs> how exposed are we? So, I mean, it really, that's a good question. Um, so if I, I ask you to rate it that- on a scale of one to 10, 
One, we're just fine. There's nothing in our water supply or anything. And 10 being someone can flip a switch tomorrow and we'll all be like poisoned to death, right? Like, where are we? <laughs> we're definitely not there. Oh my gosh. I can't, I feel, I, I feel like I can't act- accurately give a one to 10, but I would say definitely not the 10. There is, there are really great people from an elect. Okay. We can talk about, I feel like it's easier to sort of break it down by sector. Right. And so, you know, this, this whole idea of like flipping a switch and like the whole electric grid goes down and there's like mass blackouts and mass hysteria all across the United States. Um, again, I'm going to kind of come at this from a sort of North American perspective. Right. It's, um, uh, you have to, right? Because it's so, uh, ge- it, it has so many geopolitical implications that you can't just, you can't make yeah. a, you can't make a global <laughs> statement. It's relevant for everyone. Yeah. Okay. So, so caveating that I'm coming at this from a North American perspective, and we're talking about the electric sector, um, because I think that that's where a lot of the focus is. Um, is that that's, we, that's where a lot of the focus is from uh, Acker uh, adversary no, no, activity? From, well, yeah. I mean, from from a um, from a from a press, I guess. Or okay. From a mass so, right. 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 Per, so just kind public. of like the hyperbole. Yeah. The hyperbole is around we can have a massive blackout because someone flips a switch. Exactly. And that is, you know, not true first. Like that's, that's like to have a sort of major, major impact like that would also sort of like require kinetic operations. Like there's not like a, like a, um, you know, a, a, a kill switch, right? That's just like, bam, everyone's, everyone's in the dark now. Um, I will say though that, you know, there are adversaries out there that are creating malware to specifically target industrial control systems and operations. Um, but the, you know, it, it's it's something that they're definitely interested in. I would say that there are you know mitigations in place, especially when we're talking about the North American electric grid, um, that are, for instance, um, NERC SIP regulations. The North American Electric Reliability Corporation has these sort of critical infrastructure protections that are in place um, that essentially govern the cybersecurity measures of the bulk electric system. So you have folks who are, you know, practicing um, good cybersecurity that are that are following these sort of um, regulations that are put in place. I would say what we are seeing that that's I think kind of interesting to me is a lot of the disruption to OT um, operations technology or industrial control systems. Some of the disruption that we're seeing there is from sort of um, ransomware, for instance. Um, We've seen, especially recently, uh, when you're talking about ransomware adversaries that are, are, are playing this sort of, you know, big game hunting strategy where they're going after major operations. And in a lot of ways, you know, the, the manufacturing doesn't really have the same sort of regulations that you'll see with um, with the electric sector, right? So oftentimes they'll have like flat networks in manufacturing and if they're infected with maze ransomware on, you know, their HR IT side, that could very easily go into the operations and have a sort of disruptive effect, whether or not the intended, you know, effect of the ransomware or the malware was to have, you know, to, to make their manufacturing go down. So I think that, you know, so you're tracking you're tracking those like traditional Windows network ransomware attacks for some of your ICS vendors and some of your private reporting as well because it's so relevant to their uh, just business value. Whether it, whether it takes a plant offline is not really relevant. Which if it takes a company offline and then the plant can't ship anything, then it's it's still the same business impact, right? For sure. Well, yeah. So so it's it's yeah it's really interesting and then the fact that you know the the how how fast can they you know what's the resilience of this organization you know what is their response and recovery you know plans look like so so and and it'll you know vary based on the threat itself right but what's interesting i think i mean so personally i'm very interested in ransomware it's like my pet project um and i have actually um some research coming out on it um soon in the in the foreseeable future um kind of about this very specific thing targeting ics so that's why i'm kind of talking about it. it's my pet interest All right. but, wait 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 <laughs> i can't let you just kind of because ransomware is the hottest thing out right now and it's like number one issue facing CISOs as well and it's your pet oh. project i got a couple of questions for you i don't know if you oh, want to yeah, yeah. jump in and share your own personal opinions should vendors should affected should infected organizations pay ransoms um Speaking of my own personal opinion, as no, uh, not a representative of Dragos, because we do not <laughs> want to ever do that, right? Um, I would say it depends. Um, I, I, like I these know are the that, questions you know, your the, customers have. Like these are the real questions your customers have. Do yeah, I so, do I stockpile Bitcoin to pay a ransom? Do I try to find a third party vendor who is available to negotiate with ransomware miscreants for me? Uh, how much of this is like so it's so bad at the enterprise level there's so many infections everywhere 
that I almost feel like this whole to pay or not to pay should be a, a bigger conversation topic. So, and you bring up a really interesting point. So I think to pay or not to pay that in my own personal opinion, and like I said, not representing the company, I very, I think it depends, right? Like for instance, you know, if you are an organization that has, you know, the safety is compromised because of ransomware, like, do you like, you have to weigh the risks to your organization, right? So, so it's a hard problem. It's very, very hard, but I would say that it, the ransomware adversaries have recently kicked it up a notch because I think that enterprises are a lot more adept at um, uh, kind of being prepared for ransomware insofar as, you know, keeping offline backups, making sure that, you know, we're taking all these precautions, being able to have these sort of response and remediation plans in place. So if something happens, but the adversaries are becoming attuned to that. And it's the not adversary lives in a network. The adversary lives in a network for months and months and months. Like you can have your, you can have all your global policy unless you, like find a way to strip them out of your networks. I heard a story. I don't know if you've heard any of this, but I heard a story. I don't know how much of it is true. Anecdotally, someone told me that a ransomware gang, very professional ransomware gang, infected a network, got into a network and literally found, looked for, found the insurance policy to see if they had ransomware coverage and then <laughs> use, that in, use that actual policy in the course of the negotiation and the ransomware payment. So it's like, it's real and it's so professional and hardcore that I don't think, I think we cover it at the surface in the media, but understanding at a deeper level, like how hardcore this stuff is, it's frightening. Right. Well, and to your point too, is that they're, they're in there, they're in the network and they're getting information. And so even if, you know, and an, uh, a company has, you know, precautions in place where it's like, okay, like even if, you know, our, our network gets encrypted, we can respond, we can respond to it and be back up pretty quickly. They're stealing data and they're holding that for ransom. And that I think brings up another fascinating question because now you have all of these other sort of legal issues that are in place that are involved when it's a data breach. And you also have to figure out, okay, if I negotiate with this criminal and pay their ransom that they're asking for, how do I know that they're going to be deleting this information? How do I know that they haven't already sold this somewhere else? Like, how do I know that they're upholding their end of a bargain? You never. Right? Like, historically, you never it's like know. a ransom attack. It's like, okay, I pay you. I get the key. I know that's like, it works and I got my stuff back. But like this whole data breach, data theft, and like whether or not encryption even happens, it's like, okay, it's still ransom. Is it ransomware? I don't know. But it's it's like this whole new sort of weird yeah. level of it. It's really, really murky. And on top of that, there's an, ex there's an extortion component to it where uh, the guy's getting, take the data and use your bug bounty programs to try to extort money out of you to get this data back. And then you're never sure if you get the data back. Uh, you're paying ransomware guys extra money as part of the negotiations. You pay extra for their yeah, commitment to delete it. Like that's so, that's just, it's fascinating. I think I think it's fascinating. Um, and it's really sad, right? Like it super sucks. Um, and I don't think there's like an easy solution to it, right? Like a technical solution to ransomware is like there are ways that you can like prepare for this sort of thing and like like you you have these sort of mitigations and and defensive options that you can take to sort of, you know, prevent against um, an infection or when, you know, it occurs, you have hopefully your backups and, and, you know, your, the plans in place to respond to it, but adding, you know, the extortion piece on top of it just isn't, uh, muddies the waters so much. And yeah. And then there's the recent a, example of the slow leaks, you know, they're slowly going to release some information and slowly going to publicly embarrass you until you pay. It's, it's, it's really fascinating how organized these gangs are and how, uh, successful it is because if you if I go to darkreading.com right now I guarantee you the front page has three I haven't looked I haven't looked but I guarantee you it has three ransomware headlines if I go to pick a security publication there's three mm -hmm. three ransomware headlines on the front page right now you mentioned yeah, a report coming up um, and maybe we can you can come back on the podcast and we can dig into ransomware a bit because it's a pet subject of mine as well but mm -hmm. are you seeing are you seeing specific ransomware attacks going against ICS installations or are they just byproduct uh, and and collateral damage from just traditional ransomware attacks so there actually are some ransomware strains that are adopting um, ICS processes into their kill lists um, so it's not necessarily specifically targeting operations. I mean, they will have your the sort capabilities of enterprise, there. Um, 
um, uh, process lists in uh, as part of the code as well. Um, but they are sort of adopting these new um, um, lists that focus on industrial um, control system equipment. So it is pretty interesting. Um, Atkins, I think, was the was the big one um, that that came out um, that that was targeting um electric manufacturing pharmaceutical like you the, the, with um you know the 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 process code list um but clop is another one that has adopted some of those mechanisms megacortex which was like a precursor to Atkins even um so you have a lot of these ransomware strains that are including um that type of of targeting um in its code but we haven't, at least, we have not seen anything specifically targeting um, OT. Um, all of the ransomware that we see that does have disruptive effects does still maintain some of that, you know, um, enterprise uh, enterprise encryption mechanisms. I, I know we we kind of went off on a tangent uh, with the ransomware thing because you you mentioned it and I got all excited about talking about no, it. No, no, it's but, great. It's great. <laughs> no, but I, 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 we're up against a forty-five minute mark, and I want to be mindful of your time. Um, we we didn't finish the conversation in terms of how bad things are. You were you you were talking about the electric sector and so on, and I just want to go mm-hmm. back to that and finish on well, well, what worries you the most? Like you, we, we're not a ten. We're not a one either because we know that people are sitting around some of these electric grid networks. We know that they're APT attacks. We see the ICS, uh, 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 what is it, the ICS CERT reports on a, on a quarterly basis. They, they have a list of attacks that's happening. We see the work out of Drago. So we know it's not a one, right? So it's mm-hmm. somewhere, let's say, let's, let's, for argument's sake, say it's a four or a five, right? Like what worries you the most? What, what realistically can happen that like, you know, based on, on, on what you know makes you nervous mm-hmm. without getting well, into so, FUD and scaring people, but giving people a sense of how real is it? Yeah, of course. It is very real. So you have crash override, for instance, that target transmission station in Ukraine and was able to sort of disrupt um, disrupt electricity for um, an hour plus um, to uh, Kiev, like an entire city. So you have malware that's able to do that. Um, I think for me, Trisis was um, Trisis malware, which targeted um, safety instrumented systems at an oil and gas facility in the Middle East. Um, that to me is really concerning because safety systems at especially you know oil and gas petrochemical facilities are in place to protect people's lives and you know to prevent explosions um, and to prevent you know major environmental impacts um, and so for me you know adversaries having the ability or even a desire to sort of target and potentially you know disrupt or cause a malfunction to safety equipment is very very concerning and we've seen it right so it was unsuccessful. Um, the trisis attack and um, the 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 safety uh, instrumented system ended up it failed failed safe right so um, there was no explosion there there was no harm caused to you know physical harm caused to operators um, but to me that's that's really concerning that you know adversaries are are upping the ante I guess right like there are there there is malware right that I think I've seen trisis reported on is like the malware that can kill um, and it that does kind of scream FUD, but in the same time, it's like, it is targeting the equipment that is designed to keep people in the environment safe. And so you have adversaries that are, you know, having this, A, having those capabilities and B, the desire. And I think, I mean, to, I don't want to get into sort of like geopolitical military national security stuff. Cause I think that's a whole other can of worms. Yeah, that's a ball of wax. Um, I don't want to touch yeah. that. <laughs> but like, if you have, you know, we, we, we talk about, you know, cyber war or like, you know, cyber capabilities, augmenting kinetic capabilities and, and for, you know, states and governments and whatever that are, you know, having, having these abilities to, you know, target industrial processes, it's called critical infrastructure for a reason, because it's critical and fundamental to society. And so I think that, you know, it's, the threats are real. The threats are, are bad. I'm not just, I'm not saying that they're not out there. Um, They're very, very real and they're, they can be very scary. But on the flip side is that I think there's a lot of work being done from asset owners and operators, from various government entities and, and, you know, regulators from, you know, uh, even Intel teams like ours, right? Like, well, like we're hunting those bad guys to try and, you know, offer defense for, for customers. So I think that, you know, they're, they're not as bad as we realize, but not as bad as we imagine or something that, that Rob likes to say, <laughs> like, yeah. the threats are real, but not as, but the, but you know, like the, there's no kill switch for, for critical infrastructure. So. And I last think, question, um, last question before I let you go is, do you get a sense that, or are you starting to see and hear 
that equipment manufacturing, ICS equipment vendors are holding up their end of the bargaining and adding, you know, secure development lifecycle SDL processes to their software and hardware, uh, you know, creation chain. Do you get a sense that at that level, security is starting to become a front burner issues? Because five, 10 years ago, when we had Stuxnet, it was kind of like everything was, it felt like people were saying everything is in the 1990s. Are we, have we modernized in that way? Wow, now you want to get into a discussion on SBOM, <laughs> software bill of materials. No, um, I think so so that's a good that's a good point, right? Um and what's actually interesting. No, is it getting better? From- that's the, I mean, that's the, the question. Are, are are vendors starting to buy security religion yet? Or are we still immature uh, at a general sense? I think it depends. I think that there's a lot of great people that are working on these on these problems. But if you look at industrial control system equipment, some of that is decades old, and it's not going to get updated anytime soon. Um, you, know, for instance, like you see things with um, like with if Microsoft Windows issues a patch. Oftentimes, vendors will have to you know validate and issue patches, and you know customers can't do it themselves because it'll break you know um, any warranty or or something that they have. So I think that process is is still kind of broken. But I think that that vendors are trying, and I think that it's definitely something that um, that is improving. Um, but I think you know the the idea, especially in ICS, where you know it's not the next new thing all the time, right? Like we're still dealing with decades old infrastructure and, you know, trying to keep that safe and secure. And so while new stuff might be, you know, taking security very seriously and incorporating all of that stuff. And I, I, I brought up SBOM as a joke, the software bill of materials, but it is something that's really, you know, trying to get pushed and, and some attention on because, you know, it could be a, a, an ingredients list for, for equipment that could, you know, help in this process. Um, but I think, you know, it's, it's something that we're going to continue to face and continue to be an issue. But again, I, I, I have to point out that the people that are working on these problems and people in ICS security are just, you know, they care so much and are really working hard to solve these problems. And they understand it. I think today people understand it a lot more than five years ago, just based on my conversations. And I th- so I think oh, there's, there's a lot more progress being made there. Absolutely. Yes, there is. Yeah. Wider adoption, just as if there's wider adoption for, you know, the understanding of the importance of communicating this stuff, the effective communication is working, right? Like <laughs> we've, they, we've, we've had more success. So that's really positive. So uh, before you came on this podcast and I was prepping, I have a list of like 12 to 15 questions. I think I touched on three of them. So I think that's oh a sign. <laughs> that's a sign that you got to come back. Uh, we can talk about the journalism thing forever. We can talk about the ransomware thing forever. When you have your ransomware report, give me a ping and come back. Let's let's nerd out on it a little bit. Yeah, I would love to. Yeah, I hope I hope it's interesting, and I'd love to come back. It's always great talking with you. I feel like we I feel like we vibe on a lot of things. So it's it's always it's always a pleasure. It's my pleasure. Thanks, Alina. Thank you. Thank you.